lambs and puppies. Sure, they're cute, and they're an integral part of the culture when you travel in Wales. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. For as long as I've been traveling, I've been charmed by the farmhouse B&Bs, pastoral settings, and all those sheep. But I didn't have a clue about the rich traditions that go with sheep herding. Coming up, we'll be joined by a Welshman who has twice won the International Sheepdog Trials in the UK. Alan Owen's farm exhibit in Northern Wales has been rated one of the top tourist attractions in all of Britain. He joins us today to let us in on raising sheep and training those sheepdogs. And to start the hour ahead, let's take some calls about getting away for the holidays in Europe. Are you traveling for the holidays? What are your suggestions on where to spend Christmas and New Year's overseas? We're leaving home for the holidays and dropping in on a little Welsh farm life on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. There's sheep everywhere in my travel memories, and this hour, we're learning about the farm culture that raises them. First, let's check your travel agenda for the upcoming holidays. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. All right, we got uh, Dale online in Irvine, California. Dale, hi. Hi, good to talk to you. I'm heading off to London in the U.K. Uh, just after Christmas, and I'm wondering, are there any particular things in London you'd recommend for me to see and do? And secondarily, uh, I hope to spend uh, nine or ten days uh, traveling, or at least train trips, from uh, London to smaller towns. And I'm wondering, considering the winter, what would be the recommended sites at this time of the year? Oh, I was just in Europe uh, for the last two Christmases, and and Europe, you know, what's fun is to find out every culture celebrates Christmas differently uh, in Europe. And remember, the holiday season stretches in Europe from late November all the way to Epiphany, which is January 6th. That's the 12th day of Christmas when the wise men uh, finally got the got the gifts to Jesus, you know. When you're um, uh, traveling in Britain, I would remind you that they just go all out to decorate the shops and have their hot mulled wine in the squares and special Christmas markets, like in Germany. When I was there, there was snow brought into Trafalgar Square. Of course, you won't have snow in London, but to, if they are filling Trafalgar Square with snow, it's so much fun because they bring all the kids out and uh, there's the, the town crier wishing everybody a Merry Christmas and handing out mince pies. You know, there's some tradition where they have to, I think, have a mince pie every, every day of the season. One big thing when you're traveling in Britain is, uh, temperature-wise, it's not that cold, but you know, it's kind of windy and drizzly and, and kind of bleak weather and you really want to dress uh, properly. Now, from London, you want to head for a side trip, and uh, you said you got eight or ten days. Is that right? Yes. Boy, um, eight or ten days in the winter. You know, the the countryside is so bleak in the winter, and the cities are so charming. I would stick more to towns rather than tooling around the, the countryside. London is the most expensive city in a lot of ways, I think, in Europe from an accommodations point of view, and the public transportation is quite expensive. So side tripping out from London and back every day just means you're spending more on the trains and you're spending more on your accommodations. I would be sure to sleep in the smaller towns where you'll get the same comfort for half the price. I'm just a big fan of Bath. That's two hours west of London. Bath to me is a beautiful place from a sort of a Victorian, charming, old England sort of uh, ambience. And Dale, I think that would that would be a good target. I, I like the bath idea. I'm wondering uh, where where else besides Bath? That was Bath was on my target, but uh, York, for instance. Well, Bath and York are the two best cities outside of London. I just did a TV show uh, last summer, and it was and we called it uh, England's Easy Urban Delights. Bath and York. Uh, both of those places are very easy to get to. Both of those places have this sort of. Uh, they celebrate the kind of ye old traditions, and I, I don't think you can go wrong with either of those. Also remember that you can fly open jaws, and you could do a trip that's London, York, and Edinburgh. It's about five hours on the train from London to Edinburgh. Fly into London, do London, go up to York for a couple of days, and finish with Christmas in Edinburgh and fly home directly from there. Okay. Yeah, good that luck with your like travels. sounds like some great ideas. I appreciate that. All right. Enjoy your holiday travels. <laughs> Bye now. Bye-bye. And Pete is on the line in Huntersville, North Carolina. Hi, Pete. Hi, Rick. As with the uh, previous caller, I, I'll be traveling to uh, Europe for the holidays, and actually be starting uh, the week before Christmas. Uh, I'll be traveling through Paris, Bruges, Brussels, and Amsterdam. 
you know, flying uh, open jaw and uh, flying into Paris and out of Amsterdam. What are the uh, good sites and events to uh, check out that I otherwise would not be able to experience at other times of the year? Well, I was just in Amsterdam last Christmas, and it was the year after I filmed my TV special for public television on European Christmases, and frankly, I was glad I didn't try to film Amsterdam Christmas because there's not much there for Christmas. I love Amsterdam, and it was snowing gently and all that was very nice, but uh, don't go to, from my experience, uh, there was almost nothing in Amsterdam for Christmas. Paris, on the other hand, uh, Paris was a delight on Christmas. Uh, You know, they've got skating halfway up the Eiffel Tower, that's cool. And Paris has this wonderful uh, passion for fashion. And they've got, like, like Père Noël, that's the French uh, kind of Santa Claus, he's actually out there giving people advice on shopping. And he's in the streets. And uh, they go all out for their window displays. And it's so cute, they've got little stools in front of the windows so the French tiny tots can stand up and get a good look at the window displays. That's great. Yeah, and actually, I, I will be in Paris the week before Christmas and uh, in Bruges during Christmas, spending uh, you know, the rest of the time... Uh, getting through Brussels and uh, ending up in Amsterdam for the New Year. So Amsterdam and the New Year, now that's going to be a party. <laughs> that, that's what I thought. When you're in Paris, there's a publication called The Periscope, which just costs less than a dollar to buy, and it's your periodical entertainment guide, and that'll tell you what's happening. There's even a little English section there, but there's certainly going to be a lot of uh, visitor-friendly ways for you to you know, connect with the uh, seasonal celebrations in Paris. Sorry I don't have specifics for Bruges and Brussels. I haven't been there for the holidays, but you know, they've got websites, and uh, you know, all of Europe is trying to promote tourism in the winter. They've got plenty of tourism in the summer, and they're all uh, billing themselves as great destinations for the holidays. You know, find out what they've got to offer, and do that groundwork ahead of time, and I think you'll maximize the opportunity there. Wonderful. Thanks for the uh, tips. Good luck, Pete. Thank you. Thanks for your call. Chuck in Florida. Chuck, are you there? Yes, I am, Rick. I'm from Wikiwachi, Florida. Wikiwachi. Is that a town? Uh, well, Wikiwachi is where the city of mermaids is. It's about 50 miles north of Tampa. Someday I'm going to have to travel around our own beautiful country. <laughs> well, it's just mermaids. In fact, I'm a school teacher, and some of the mermaids are just sitting in my classroom. Oh, that's great. Yes. Have you been to Europe during Christmas? Yes, sir. In fact, on your uh, graffiti wall, many times people have emailed me about, we want to hear more about Nuremberg, we want to hear more about Vienna. How did you like Nuremberg during Christmas in Vienna? Rick, it's fantastic. Yeah, wow. I, I just I I love the the open air market in Nuremberg with all those stalls and and the smell. I wish we could have smell a vision, oh. so we could smell the smell the wine, the sausages. Oh. The, you are? Do you know where I'm coming from? Yeah, someday we'll have uh, olfactory lenses on our cameras, but then I'll have to bathe. That's. <laughs> But it'll That's be great. True. We'll get all those wonderful, uh, the beautiful aromas of Christmas in Nuremberg. You know, that Christmas market in Nuremberg must be one of the classiest markets in Europe, and they're very careful to keep it classy. Did you know that? There's there's no real noisy neon or, or kitschy stuff there. It's handmade, local products. Mostly, I've gone there, I believe it'll be our third time this Christmas, and you're right, it's all handmade, and, and many of the people are, are regulars. They're, it's the same stall throughout their... Is it tradition? Generations, generations doing the the same little handicrafts. And did you notice in the wine stalls there, um, Chuck, we've got a situation where there's no disposable glasses. You've got to, you give a deposit and you get a ceramic mug. And then you bring the glass back and you can get your money back or you get a uh, knock and glue vine bitta. Yeah, or you get a little uh, souvenir there and you you lose your deposit. That's so typically European. It's a wonderful way that they're able to maintain their uh, heritage and celebrate it in a classy way. And uh, we sure enjoyed that in our travels. Nuremberg is a great place for that. They've got all the carolers going from uh, courtyard to courtyard. And, of course, you've got the, uh, the great Christmas market. And as you'll see, folks that watch our Christmas special uh, on PBS, you've got this Christkind. And right. to me, this is so fascinating. Uh, of course, there's the uh, Protestant and the Catholic approach to Christmas over the centuries. And Martin Luther, you know, he didn't want uh, the focus on St. Nicholas uh, right. for the gift giving for the children. So he said, let's have the Christ child give the gifts. So the Christkind would give the gifts. But the little kids had a hard time conceptualizing the baby Jesus giving gifts. So it sort of morphed into an angel, and the angel's a young girl. So you have this uh, teenage angelic queen of Christmas called the Christ child or Christkind that is uh, sort of rock star status in Nuremberg. She's crowned uh, the Christkind, and she reigns for two years, and she goes waving her wand and to all the children's gatherings, and the kids are just enamored by her. We saw her at one little gathering, and she said, 
if you're very, very gentle, you can touch my wings. And all the kids just gently mobbed her. And it was just the most beautiful look at Christmas. And it was a, a look at Christmas that, in all my years, I had never even imagined. So that's a great thing about traveling during the holidays. And one other thing in Vienna, at New Year's Eve time, they have a stage set up with uh, rock groups and country and that type of thing. And Vienna's fantastic at New Year's Eve. So you were there in, uh, and I would think Vienna would be bitterly cold on New Year's Eve, but everybody was out for outdoor musical performances? That's correct. How did that work? Um, they, have, they have stages set up in different places in, in the old city in Vienna. Huh. These are live bands. And, of course, they have the stalls where you can, you can buy sausages and, and, wow. and gluvine and that type of thing. A lot of people and, out? Oh, it's mostly Italians. In fact, in fact, the Viennese, they say they go back home and watch on TV the, the orchestra at the uh, opera for the New Year's Eve ball. Wow, and, New Year's uh, in Vienna. There's a concept. Yes. You know, uh, you mentioned our graffiti wall at ricksteves.com. There is this wonderful community of travelers that are sharing information. I just ask the questions and get out of the way, and then these thriving boards uh, just uh, combust, and people like you are, are reading and contributing and sharing information, and there's a lot of good information there for this kind of travel. That there sure is, and I really thank you for it. Chuck, thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Very good. Okay, bye now. Bye. Corrine from Portland, Oregon, emails us, and uh, she writes, uh, Planning a trip to Italy with my husband and parents, plus two small children, ages three and one. Corrine says she's the only one who thinks it's a good idea to bring kids, uh, but she's been to Italy before and believes she knows what they're getting into. What does uh, Rick think? Well, I think you're the only one that thinks bringing a one- and a three-year-old on a trip to Italy is a good idea. Maybe you better give that some more thought, I think. Uh, I always say if you got a one-year and a three-year-old and you're planning on going to Europe and you wonder where to take them, I'd take them to Grandma and Grandpa's on the way to the airport. If you're going to take your kids over there, i got to say Italy is pretty good for little kids because the Italians just adore little children. You know, my wife, Anna, and I took our kids when they were three and one to Italy, and we found that uh, it was the talk of the town. But you've got to sort of slow down and sit on the benches and watch the kids play with the other kids and have that easygoing kind of approach to travel rather than having a high-powered sort of sight agenda. Uh, Corrine, if you can throw out your museum agenda, and if you can just enjoy il dolce far niente, the sweetness of doing nothing, I think you'll be fine with kids in Italy. Uh, remember, uh, what I found was uh, forget pack and light. Uh, anything that uh, you think you need in the way of gear, bring it and have a big car to carry it all. A travel crib, heavy-duty stroller, all the, the munchies and the, and the comfortable food that the kids want. We had no problem with that as, as long as we had a car pick up at the airport and then a family of four. We managed just fine in Europe. It's more interesting than changing diapers at home, I'll tell you that. Bob in Bowling Green, Ohio has traveled, and he sends us this report by email. Traveling along the Rhine to Luxembourg, we struck up a conversation with a lady in our railway car. She told us about her city of Trier. We always try to keep one or two days open for unexpected journeys, so we did get off the train at Trier, spent two great days there. We love Trier. It has the best apple strudel of any place we went. Good tip from Bob in Bowling Green. Leave a few days of slack in your itinerary so you can uh, respond to that kind of positive serendipity. We're getting to know sheep, up close, and the dogs that keep them in line, deep in the heart of rural Wales. It's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now, we're going to get into sheep. I mean, this is going to be an interview about sheep appreciation for travelers. I've got with me a couple of expert sheep herders from Wales and from New Zealand. And, you know, it may seem like a strange topic, but when you travel, you encounter sheep everywhere. The Cotswold villages in England are the most charming villages anywhere. Why? Because of all the wealth brought to them by their sheep and the wool in the generations past. And you travel in the Lakes District, and one of the top things to do is go to a sheep center where you get to see 18 different breeds of sheep. If you've got any luck, you'll be at the B&B, and they'll be shearing sheep tonight, and you can uh, actually get in there and help them out. Traveling in Turkey, you meet nomadic Kurds, and, and their whole world is sheep and goats. In Ireland, uh, of course, one of the most beautiful photo ops is when the sheep are clogging the roads, and you jump out and, uh, and take a photograph. Sheep outnumber the people in New Zealand these days 12 to 1. There's a whole genre of jokes down in New Zealand for sheep. Uh, in Scotland, a friend told me they clear the road by hollering mint sauce. There's so much going on for sheep in your travels, and frankly, I can't even tell the difference between a sheep and a goat when I'm on the road, so I want to learn about sheep. And I got with me... Alad Owen is on the phone from Wales. Alad is a sheep herder who runs a company called Euphoria that shows the sheep culture and the sheepdog culture for travelers with shows every day. Alad, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Alad, I read on your website that you won the supreme title in the competition in 1999 with a sheepdog named Ron, is that right? And then the next year, a different sheepdog, Bob. That's it, yes. Um, I've been very fortunate to have uh, two really good dogs. Um, Roy uh, won the Supreme in 99 and Bob in 2000 and uh, that's my claim to fame actually um, you know having two dogs winning uh, the Supreme Championship which is the um, ultimate trial here in the United Kingdom Apparently uh, you have, you have a, like a, a great uncle who won the same competition 100 years ago uh, Yes actually William Jones was his name and uh, he was the first sheepdog handler from Wales that travelled over the border, although England isn't very far. But he was uh, apparently the first Welshman that competed in uh, different parts of England. So this is uh, probably not unusual to have sheep herding and, and sheep farming in the family for generation after generation in the north of Wales? Uh, no, it's quite common. I was up in the north of England in the Lakes District. It was the same thing. Uh, every other B&B uh, farm in the countryside has been many generations, father to son, father to son, uh, with sheep being their primary business. That's it, yes. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, things are changing a little bit these uh, last few years. Um, sheep farming isn't that profitable anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. But. My friend uh, up in uh, Keswick area in, in the Windermere Lakes District, we uh, helped him shear a sheep, and he bundled up the pelt, and he threw it at me, and it was that, like the whole overcoat of the sheep. And I held that, and he said, what do you think that's worth? And uh, I forget exactly, but uh, it was like just a couple of pounds. What would an a, a entire pelt sell for these days? Well, it depends what uh, type of sheep it is. Of course, the mountain sheep that we've got here in uh, this part of uh, North Wales, they're very, very hardy. And for a hardy sheep, you need uh, coarse wool. Of course, that type of wool isn't uh, the best quality. We'd be getting around, I suppose, about 50 pence for a whole fleece. And if you want to pay a sheep shearer to shear that sheep, that would cost over 50 pence. So, So there's no profit at all in it. So you actually lose money by shearing a sheep, given the, the value of raw, rough wool on the market these days. That's it, yes. So that, yes. given today's exchange rate, that's about a dollar for an entire pelt. Exactly, yes. Wow. I've also, to round things out, I've got with me Simon Griffith. And Simon, um, I know him because he makes the best travel shows on TV. He's my uh, producer, and I've worked with him for six or seven years now. Yeah. But Simon goes back, back, back to the New Zealand days in his life when he was a sheep herder. Well, yeah, it's hard not to have some interaction with sheep when you're growing up in New Zealand. My dad was a, a veterinary surgeon, and uh, my brother-in-law was a, a sheep farmer. So I kind of grew up spending a lot of time on, on sheep farms. Just So you'd just, help out? There's a boy around and he'd help out? Yeah, yeah, you're telling me. He'd have dogs as well, but then I was kind of like an addition to his dogs. And, uh, you know, I had to run up the hills and... And, uh, so it's kind of all hands on deck. All hands on deck, yeah. I heard in 1982 there was 72 million sheep in New Zealand, and today it's down to 43 million, but that still outnumbers New Zealanders more than 10 to 1. Yeah, there's a, definitely been a, a change. Even I've noticed it now the last time I went back, uh, certain hills that used to, when you arrive, they're just these green hills with these little uh, white dots on them, and now... Uh, because of economics and differences, they have cattle on them now. It's, it's There's been a, a trend. Now, there's still plenty of sheep to go around. I don't think people have to get worried about going to New Zealand and not seeing their dose of sheep, but definitely you, you can notice it. I know a lot of um, 
hogs and chickens are being raised indoors, just kind of become big industry. Is that happening with sheep also, and, and we're going to get less of the picturesque open-air grazing? No, I can't see that, of course. There are a few farmers that keep sheep in for lambing time, actually. I've got uh, a couple of hundred sheep inside the shed uh, at the time being, but as soon as they lamb, they'll be outside. So they'll be in for about six weeks. Uh, we scanned them just at the beginning of the year, found the twins, the ones that were carrying twins, uh, the ones that have singles, and uh, the singles are outside and the twins are inside, but they're out as soon as the lambs are, say, 48 hours old. So now, twins, is that common for sheep to have twins then? It is very common these days. Of course, uh, since the war, um, farmers were uh, given subsidy to improve the land. And the better the land, uh, the higher uh, fertility rate. So, um, you know, there are more and more twins nearly every year. So when I say uh, better land, higher fertility, how does that work? Well, of course, um, when I started farming on my own 25 years ago now, we were told to reseed the land every five or six years to improve the land. And, of course, by doing that, the land was improving all the time. And, of course, stock were getting uh, much stronger as well, bigger and more fertile. So um, we are having a lot more lambs. If you went back 40 years, 100% lambing would be really good. Um, But now some farmers, especially in the lowlands, are uh, looking at 160 or even 170% lambing for every 100 head of sheep that you've got. So you'd get 160, 170 babies for every 100 sheep you have on your yes, farm yes, every uh, year? especially in the lowlands. You know, when I'm going around the countryside, I see these markings on the sheep, and somebody told them that the, the sheep farmers can tell if they've um, actually, what's the word, copulated, um, if they've got a, a certain mark on them. Does the paint have anything to do with whether they've uh, mated? Yes, it is. We've got markers on the rams. Usually we start with a very light, maybe a light green mark. And, of course, if he mates a sheep, then there'll be a light green mark there. And then, uh, of course, after, uh, say, 16 or 17 days, we'll change that crayon. We'll put a a different color, say, uh, a blue color. And uh, then we'll turn the ram back, and uh, there might be two or three sheep that might be with that colored. So um, later on, we'll go through the sheep, we'll see the ones with the light green, we'll know exactly when those sheep will be having lambs. It'll be in the first cycle, so in the first uh, three weeks. Do you think that that just automatically uh, translates into um, a pregnancy, or, or, or is that like you can't draw any conclusions there because of the luck of nature? Uh, yes, what we're looking for, um, you know, to um, especially if you have sheep that are inside, um, you don't want them in too long. So the ones with the green mark, as I say, if they're starting lambing on the 1st of March, okay. for instance, then you know the ones with the green mark, they'll be finished within those first 16 days. So the girls with marks, you take them inside? Uh, yes, all, well, all the sheep that are, are carrying twins. Okay. But you'll know exactly that the ones with a green mark on their backs, that those will have uh, uh, their lambs in the first couple of weeks. Just from a sightseeing point of view for us tourists, where does the paint on the ram go? Um, It's on the brisket. It's like a strap that we've got and that hooks over the shoulder. And uh, so that's on the brisket itself. So that's on his his chest. Yes. And then if you see the paint on the back of a a sheep, sheep, you know that sheep's going to be going in pretty soon. Yes, that, that sheep will be hope, hopefully having some lambs. You, all, you always hear people joke about how dumb the sheep are. I mean, if you're driving around Ireland or Wales, you can't get down the road because the sheep just look at you when you get your car coming right at them. Yeah. Are, are they as dumb as they, as they act, basically? Some people think they are dumb, but um, personally, I don't think that they're, they're quite that dumb. Um, they can actually know the difference between vehicles. Uh, there's a friend of mine that uh, has some land not far from me here, and uh, he comes up maybe every three days. And uh, the sheep know that he's coming when he's about a quarter of a mile away. They can recognize the sound of his vehicle. Wow, and that's, that's uh, really incredible. I'm talking with Aladon from the north of Wales. He runs a company called Euphoria, which shares the sheep culture with travelers. And I'm also talking with my friend Simon Griffith, who grew up in New Zealand working on a sheep farm. 
Alad, we've got a caller on the line from Bainbridge Island in Washington uh, who's got some thoughts on uh, sheep and her travels. Wendy, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah. What was your sheep experience in your travels? Oh, it was um, in 2004 we went to um, the Cotswolds as part of our trip to um, England. And, you know, we visited London. But one of the things that I noticed on the roads as we drove around the back roads of the Cotswolds was that um, you could, you know, see sheep pretty much everywhere you looked. And every time I'd come to a market town, I would assume that I would find um, a yarn shop. (laughs) But um, I I was naive and didn't know that most of the sheep in that area were used for making rugs. Uh, One of the things I looked forward to was maybe getting to see some lambing. And we were very fortunate to um, happen to be in the area of um, Blenheim Castle and um, looked through... One of the local, like, magazines that has places to stay near specific areas like Blenheim and happened upon this particular um, listing for a Spring Hill farm, which is in Whitney, just outside of Blenheim. And it happened to mention that it was a working farm, but it didn't say anything more about it. But I thought, well, it's, you know, it's, it's close to where we're going to be. Let's go there. So we were... Um, we were so delighted to find that when we um, arrived there that the woman was very hospitable, but she also had to go out and do her chores, and it turned out that she was, they were at the absolute peak of their lambing season. And so we um, followed her back to the barns and, and were able to um, bottle feed bummer lambs and watch all of these moms and their pens with their markings on their back that identified the moms to the um, lambs, and then there was this big pen where all these other ewes were about to give birth, and I just got the giggles because I I was so excited because I'd finally gotten to see what I thought I would see. So this was just a bonus from your bed and breakfast experience in small town Britain. Simon, what season is lambing season? Is that a, is it a, a certain time of the year? Yeah, it's you usually time it so that the uh, springtime growth uh, on the grass, so that they uh, they arrive uh, just when when the mothers can can eat good grass and produce a lot of milk, and that's where you get the, the best spring lamb, of course, to a little little while later. But that's <laughs> spring. That's that's going in the whole row cycling pig sort of <clears> direction. Elliot, <throat> uh, is that true in Wales also that you'd probably be lambing mostly in the spring? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. Now, spring in New Zealand would be a different time of year, right? So you're yes, talking exact, what month? Exact opposite. Uh, down there, it's it would be like September. September, and in Wales, it would be April, March, May, March, March, March and April. So, if you're really interested in uh, having this uh, farm experience and seeing the lambing in action, and basically that's the season when uh, 100 sheep are having 160 lambs, if that's a good ratio, right, Alad? Yes. That would be a good time to travel. Is March or or April or something like that in in Britain? Yes. Yes, it would be. And where would I go if I wanted to, um, the wool for, for hand knitting? Um, is there a particular area of England or Wales where I would go where I would find that kind of wool? Well, you can find it all over the country. The type of sheep that we keep in North Wales, uh, the hill breeds, those, and of course up in Scotland as well, uh, and the north of England, those are the hill breeds. Uh, the best wool comes from the lowland breeds, or so the down sheep, uh, uh, the Oxford down, um, the uh, and a few others, the Ryland sheep. It's very, very good quality, very fine quality wool, and that's, of course, is the, the best type of wool for weaving and so on. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for your call. I appreciate your having me on. And, uh, Wendy, in your future travels, when you're traveling, you can look for these sheep shows, and they actually show off the different breeds. Alan, do you show off different breeds in, in your sheep show? Uh, yes, we do. We've oh. got uh, 13 different breeds of sheep. 13 but different, and each would have a different sort of characteristic of their wool. Yes, All yes. All right. Okay, thanks again, Wendy, for Thank your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. From a practical sightseeing tip, children love to feed sheep and goats. Is it dangerous? Have you ever had a child lose a finger by feeding goats or sheep? Uh, not feeding sheep, no, feeding lambs. That's what we usually do. Uh, we feed lambs uh, up to the, the middle of June, you know, when lambs are smaller, of course. But no, there's no problem with but that. But if you're all. just walking around and maybe hiking and you come across some old sheep in a farm and you want to feed them, is it completely safe? 
Oh, it's completely safe, but but you just see an old sheep. They're not going to come up to you or anything. I mean, your only best bet that would be when they have little lambs and they, and they have a bottle, you know, in a place like Ella's. Oh, you know, in a, and in a petting and, farm or something. A, yeah, or or at a farm like his. I mean, do you do that, Ella? Do do uh, do you have bottle fed yes, lambs? Yes, yes. Yeah. So so the two months of the season, uh, we'll have pet lambs there. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe half a dozen or, uh, or a few more, depending on how unlucky we've been with uh, landing ourselves. Uh, um, but yeah, there'll be pet lambs there for the first couple of months. But from a from a parent's point of view, if you're out hiking, you see sheep, they're not going to bite your kids. Nope. <laughs> no, no, will sheep not. will usually walk away. They'll from go you. away. They're they're real scaredy cats. And yeah. what about electric fences? Are there still electric fences in use? Uh, there are, but uh, not on our farm. Some farmers use the. Um, the mobile ones, you know, that the, they, they move uh, okay. every couple of uh, days. Does a human being need to be worried about an electric fence? Well, I hate them. I don't like them at all yeah, myself, yeah. personally. But, uh, and no, my, my advice to, uh, would be uh, to avoid those, yeah, because yes, I mean, nowadays they pack a punch. Really? Uh, and they, How they, do you they, test they it? You get a piece of long piece of grass. And, and then, what happens? And then you just you won't feel anything. And then as you slide the piece of grass toward the electric fence, you'll start to feel the pulse. So you so can slowly build the, the electric shock power yeah. by sliding the grass toward you. Yep. Wow. My dad always told me if you, if you touched it on the inside of your hands, the impulse would make yeah. your fist grab it. So you could yeah. test it by hitting it on the back of your hands when there's no way to grab it. It, it. That's a good suggestion, but they're usually they're not. Electric fences aren't that powerful, but the no. other suggestion is don't pee on them. <laughs> don't pee on them. Why not? Yeah. yeah the, um, best thing to do is to get somebody else to test it. <laughs> <laughs> Alid, right now, you know, you're, you're doing sheep as a business, but as you said, it's tough to make money with wool. Are you having to supplement your income by opening up to tourists and, and putting on your demonstration and your cultural show? Yes, yes, that's the, uh, that's the whole idea. Of course, 10 years ago, we had 550 head of sheep and 90 head of cattle. And of course, BAC broke out, uh, the mad cow disease broke out 10 years ago. And uh, the cattle uh, went downhill well, actually, we were only getting around 50% of what we were uh, before BSE broke out. And, of course, in the late 90s, uh, lambs started to go downhill as well. And, uh, of course, in 2001, foot to mouth broke out in this country. So that was devastating. Um, so that was uh, what made me diversify. Boy, what a frustrating thing because you have no control over that. No control whatsoever. You could be the best sheep farmer in Wales and still your economics could uh, be dictated to you. Yes, yes. Wow. Well, I hope that um, sheep farming doesn't just survive as a, a tourist attraction. Do you think that the, the sheep culture and, and the farms and the sheep dogs and so on will survive? I hope they will. Um, of course, people have to eat. And uh, these hills that we've got uh, here in the United Kingdom, this part of, the, uh, of Wales and, of course, the north of England, you can't do much with this type of land other than keep sheep and a few cattle. We can't grow any corn or anything like that so it's marginal um, on, on, on the tops here. So, yeah. um, and, of course, you've got to have farmers to keep the country looking as well as it does. So hopefully there will be something for the future generations. Wow. Well, I can attest to how the sheep add to the ambience of Wales, that's for sure. Yes. We'll see if Alad can teach this old dog some new tricks. With a whistle, it's coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and I'm joined today by Simon Griffith, who is raised helping with the family flocks in New Zealand. And on the phone from his farm in North Wales is Alad Owen, who's recognized as one of the best sheepdog breeders in all of Britain. Now, one thing I was so impressed when I visited uh, your farm, Alad, was the uh, mastery of, that the sheepdogs had over the sheep and the mastery you, as, as the herder, had over the dogs. Can you explain a little bit about how you work with the sheepdogs? How do you train them? Uh, how, are, how are they able to just mesmerize these sheep? Well, of course, uh, the dogs that we use here on uh, on this farm are border collies originally from the borders of Scotland. It's a breed specially to work stock. They'll actually work cattle or reindeer uh, and, of course, uh, sheep. It's a natural instinct that they've got. Um, you can't 
train this instinct into a dog. It's got to be there before you can do anything with him. It's lovely to see some of these pups, uh, seven, eight, nine weeks old, uh, take them out to the sheep and to see that instinct. And uh, Of course, we can't start training them until they're physically and mentally strong enough. So, you know, eight, ten months old before we can start properly. And part of the training is getting them to respond to your whistle for different commands? Yes, yes, yes. Of course, when they're pups with their mother, they look, look up to their mother because she's the one that's feeding them. The mother is the center of attention. Uh, uh, once they're weaned, when mum gets fed up with them, of course, we start feeding them. Then they'll start looking up to us, to the handler. And that's the bond that we want. We want that dog to understand uh, that we're their friend. So uh, you replace the mother, actually? Yes, in a way, we take over from the mother once pups are six to eight weeks old, uh, the mother gets fed up of them. So we start feeding and taking them over and talking to them and so on. So that's when the training begins. Elliot, I'm very, I was so enamored by your command of the dog with the whistles. Can you share with us some of these whistles? First of all, just mechanically, do you whistle with a, a little metal whistle or do you whistle with your fingers or nothing at all? Um, I whistle with my fingers, especially when the dogs are quite far away. When they're close by, um, I use verbal commands such as come by. Uh, doesn't make much sense, but come by means go to the left. And the whistle command that goes with that command is uh, a, a, a short, sharp whistle. Uh, would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. Okay, this is it. So that's the go left command. Go left, and that, and that would be come here in sheepdog jargon. Yes, in a way, yes. Here. And, yes. Then, and what's another whistle then? Uh, uh, the go right command. So that is a two-tone command. And, of course, it's, uh, you've got to have these commands, these whistle sounds very different uh, to each other, uh, especially when the dog is, say, half a mile or even further away. Um, it's got to be distinctive. Wow. And uh, what's another uh, command? Uh, the stop command, which, of course, is the main command. If, if your dog doesn't stop, then uh, you've got big problems. And uh, this is the, uh, the stop command. The verbal command is lie down, and the whistle command is... Um, so it's a, a high-low type of uh, whistle. And then what else would you communicate to a dog when you're out there doing your work? Right, if I want the dog to come forward... Um, again, it's a different type of whistle, and uh, um, you, you can tell him walk on, and the whistle command is, uh, which is uh, the same sounding uh, type again, but uh, of course, very different to the others. Okay, so that would bring the dog and the sheep, obviously, toward yes, you. Yes, And are those the four major commands, stop, go to the left, go to the right, and bring them forward? Yes, and of course, the recall, if you've driven, uh, of course, here on the mountains, uh, we need sometimes to drive the sheep up to the top of the hill. And uh, so we get the dog to do that, obviously, while we're standing down the bottom of the hill. And once the dog has driven the sheep far enough, then you can call the dog back. And uh, that whistle sounds a little bit like this. And that's, that's to drive them away? That's to call the dog back. Um, he's already driven oh, the sheep I see. away. So they come back without the sheep? Without the sheep. Leave the sheep up there and uh, the dog, you whistle the dog back. Okay, so I'm going to be the, um, the, the student dog, okay? You give yeah. me the whistle and I will tell you what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm running over to the left. I'm that's great. Is that right? Yeah, that's okay. correct. I'm running to the left. Now tell me something else. Stop. Uh, I'm stopping. That's good. I stopped. Okay, now I'm ready to do... They're so frisky, aren't they? They're like, they just want to help out. Yeah. And um, the next command? Oh, I'm going to the right with them. I'm, I'm taking them to the right, Alad. That's, that's good. I'm taking them. There's six of them. Stop. I stopped. That's another stop. I'm bringing them to, I'm bringing them to you. That, uh, yes. I'm, I'm bringing them in. That's it. Now what do I do? Stop, stop. I stopped. Now I'm going to leave them and I'm going to come back to you? 
Yeah, that's great. Oh, I'm a good sheepdog. Yeah, yeah, you'll make a really good sheepdog. Oh, man, that was fun. I can see how you can get trained. Yeah, yes. What are you going to reward me if I do a good job? Uh, a pat on the head, usually. That's all? Uh, <laughs> and, of course, a few kind words. That's the, uh, that's the reward that these dogs get. Oh, man, just kind yeah. words and a pat on the head. Yeah, that's it. That's all they need. <laughs> hey, um, I love it. Simon's having a good time listening to the Simon. How does that relate to the, the sheep whistles and so on that, that you grew up with? <clears throat> it's actually very, very, very similar. It's uh, just hearing Aylard uh, talking in Wales and New Zealand, very similar. I mean, each farmer can have a slight variation both in, in the, the words and the whistles, but essentially it's, it's all exactly the same. And then when the, the one thing to kind of keep in mind is that, you know, that <clears throat> As you're sending the dog away, you, you have to sort of think left and right. And then as the dog's coming towards you with the sheep in between you and the dog, you have to give sort of reverse or left and right because you have to think from the oh, dog's yeah. point of view. <laughs> but um, in New Zealand, there's there's one other type of dog because the Border Collies were imported from, from England originally and they're still used as uh, very much the way we just heard. They're silent and they have this incredible eye connection with they stare at the sheep and in New Zealand they're just called eye dogs they don't bark at all it's just purely their their presence at first the sheep move because they just see the dog and then sometimes it comes up to almost a stare off between the, the sheep and the and the dogs and, and as Ella can tell you he can give some whistles to like you know like walk up and you have to tell the dogs to kind of keep walking toward these the sheep that keep steer, staring and staring. So he's hypnotized them almost. Oh, absolutely. They can be like staring at each other's eyes and then the dog always wins, I think. But in oh. New Zealand, there was also another, um, because the flocks of sheep were much bigger, I think, than, than back in, in, in Britain. They developed another breed called a hunterway, which also just works uh, sheep. And they they do actually bark, but they, they muster sheep with their voice more than uh oh barking just, yeah cuz i don't think barking is a very classy way to sheep well or... when you're when you've got like maybe thousands of sheep and you're working okay. and and they're way over the hill completely the the dog you can't see the dog you have to just trust the dog huh. and you're you're telling the dog just to go you know to go to the right go to the right and keep going keep going to the right and these dogs will use their their barks and they will hear and, and you you may not see anything either sheep Hmm. Well, no dogs for a, quite a while, and you keep just trusting your commands. And then next thing, here's this big flock of, you know, wow. hundreds, sometimes thousands of sheep just kind of coming over the brow of the hill with these dogs barking. But then, but then you, you know, sometimes then you, once they've done their job, you use these other dogs, the eye dogs, just and they go back into their silent mode and just steer the dogs just by their, their presence. They're very, very quick. They can go left and right, and they often make their own decisions as well. I mean, they're... Because they, well, they know what they're supposed to be doing. A good them. dog, I'm sure Ella no. would agree, a really good dog, and like his champion, I think they sometimes know the sheep. If you want to know more about sheep uh, commands, there's actually a website. <laughs> I went to this website. It's sheepdogwhistle.com. Sheepdogwhistle.com. Is that right, Alad? Yes, it is. Yeah, yes. and they can, you can uh, practice your sheep commands there. I want to talk very quickly to help tourists know what they're looking at. First of all, when you're traveling, Alad, how do you tell the difference between a male and a female sheep when you're just driving around? Is there any way, easy? <laughs> well, uh, the breed of sheep here in North Wales are Welsh Mountain uh, uh, sheep. The males have horns. The females don't. Okay. So that's that's, that's, that's the pretty difference. basic. Uh, that's the easy way to tell them apart here in North Wales. That's in North Wales, but it's uh, not. Yes, yes. It but course, doesn't always um, apply everywhere. Most sheep these days they haven't got horns at all, uh, like the uh, the Suffolks, uh, um, which is a very very popular sheep over here, and of course in America as well. Um, you don't see any Suffolks with uh, with horns. But if you see a sheep with a horn, you know it's it's a guy. Yes, I've got to maybe turn him over. <laughs> Have a look. <laughs> what about, now, I'm, this seems so rudimentary, but tell me, what's the difference between a sheep and a goat? Oh, my gosh. That, that, that's a difficult one. Um, uh, well, maybe Simon would... Uh, yeah, do do they look similar? Me. I mean, well, sometimes I'm not sure what I'm looking at. They, they, they do. They, they can look very, very similar, but there are actually a few differences. Um, they are actually different species so and uh, uh they actually have a different number of chromosomes sheep 
sheep have 54, goats have 60. And uh, there are little things to look for. Uh, usually goats' tails stick up and sheep's tails hang down. Goats are browsers and uh, sheep are grazers. So goats are browsers. Goats will, will very readily, they'll often get up on their hind legs, which I don't think you'd ever see a sheep do. And they'll they'll often browse little branches and, and oh, shrubby yeah. things. You see yeah. them like yeah. reaching high for... Yeah. That's a goat. If you see that, it's not a sheep. Sheep are always just face <laughs> yeah. into the grass. Face into the grass. And they can they, they have their teeth are sort of designed. They can crop very closely to the ground. And then goats have hair, I think, and sheep have wool. Yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty big distinction. Oh, that's fundamental. Mm-hmm. And I think you can also hair. count on... So if it's hairy, it's a goat. Goat, yeah. I'm so much more tuned into my sightseeing now. This is great. Now, you know, we know that some cow breeds are, are for milk and some cow breeds are for beef, right? Is it the same with sheep for wool versus meat? Yes. Um, uh, for instance, the sheep that we've got over here down in the south of England, that's the grey face Dartmoor, for, for instance. That's a wool breed. And you'll get maybe around 24 pounds of wool from that sheep in one year. Whereas the meat breed, like the Suffolk, you'll only get maybe four pounds of wool. So if you breed for meat, you lose out on wool. Breed for wool, and you lose out on meat. If you're breeding for meat, does the quality of the meat you're producing, is it affected greatly by the quality of the food they're eating. I know in Spain, for instance, that the uh, pigs that are fed acorns make by far the best jamón, you know, and and the bacon from the pigs that eat in the valleys of the acorns is very, very expensive. Yes, uh, would yes. that be true for sheep as well? And would, would people who really know their, their lamb meat uh, be tuned into that when they go shopping in Britain? Well, people um, always ask me, um, why is uh, the hill breed or, or Welsh lamb uh, so tasty, and I think that it's uh, the, the type of sheep that we keep again here is uh, a very agile type of sheep. Um, it's it's got to be able to walk miles in a day, whereas the lowland breeds like the Suffolks and the Texels and so on, they're very, very heavy sheep and uh, try and move them more than 200 yards and uh, you'll be struggling. You know, so it's a heavier type of sheep. Well, that's what I think anyway, that's a uh, uh, the tastier meat comes from that type of sheep, the more agile type of sheep. Oh. Actually, one thing I can add that I learned actually being in Europe is uh, the sheep that are famous around Mont Saint-Michel and in Brittany, it's almost a marshland, a salty marshland, mm. and that's a very, very sought-after uh, yeah. lamb as well because connoisseurs of, of, of good lamb can actually oh, yeah. taste the salt and taste the sea and taste the... Yeah. So so their, their meat is definitely affected by what they graze on. All right. And what is mutton? Mutton is uh, meat that's over 12 months old, a sheep that's over 12 months old. So it's the opposite of roast suckling uh, lamb. Yep. Roast suckling lamb would be the most tender, right? That would be yes. lamb that has only had mother's milk. That's it, yes. Is that uh, popular uh, in the Britain? The spring lamb, that's what they... Uh, those are the lambs that sell best. Is that the term, Elliot, uh, is spring lamb? Yes. Because yes, I think yes. roast suckling is a little bit of a turnoff. In Spain, they're a little cruder and they just call it roast suckling. Uh, but the opposite of that then would be mutton. Yes. Very old, tough, yes. gamey. Yes, but of course, years ago, that's what most people uh, ate was mutton. Yeah, and I heard Prince Charles was just trying to uh, spiff up mutton's reputation. Yes. Why yes, would he, he do that? He's doing a good job. Why, why would he be promoting mutton? Um, well, of course, again, going to the hill, hill farms uh, with the poorer grass, it's very, very difficult to fatten them. So years ago, um, farmers used to keep their lambs for another 12 months, so they'd be 18 months old by the time they'd be ready. Oh. So that's what mutton was, you see. Uh, but of course, what farmers, most farmers in the lowlands are looking for is for a lamb that will be ready by the time it's six months old or less. If you want to eat mutton in a restaurant, can you find it on a menu? Actually, I haven't seen any mutton for years. For how many years? Um, lots of years. Lots of years, okay. I, I can't recall seeing uh, mutton on the, on the menu at we'll all. We'll see if Prince Charles can bring it back.
Alad is, uh, he'll be featured on, on one of our TV shows on public television, and Alad has a wonderful farm near a town called Corwin, C-O-R-W-E-N. It's in North Wales, which has, I think, the greatest concentration of sightseeing attractions arguably anywhere in Britain. I love northern Wales. Alad is, has a very welcoming farm that he uh, lets the uh, travelers come in, and, and we had a fascinating experience during the season. Uh, his uh, website, you can learn more about it, is clever name, Euphoria. That's his company, E-W-E hyphen P-H-O-R-I-A dot C-O dot U-K. In Britain, rather than dot com, they have dot C-O dot U-K. When does Euphoria welcome guests? April onwards until uh, the end of October. And, Alad, I want you to, I'm your sheepdog again. Give me the, the commands, and I'm gonna, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to the left, Alad. I'm going to the left. I'm stopping. I'm now. What do I do? I'm stopping. I got my sheep here. They're they're not going anywhere. I'm your dog. I'm coming forward. I'm bringing them forward. Am I correct? I'm still bringing them forward. Oh, I don't know what to. Oh, I'm stopping. Yes, I'm stopping with my sheep. Uh, I'm taking them back to the right, Alad. I'm taking them back to the right. I'm stopping. I've stopped with all the sheep. It's cool. Okay, I'm coming back in. I did my job. That's great. Hey, here's for the sheepdog. <laughs> Aladon, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Okay. I want to thank uh, Simon Griffith for being with us and bringing a New Zealand angle on sheep herding. It was a pleasure. And Alad Owen from Northern Wales, thank you very much and best wishes with your ongoing work. Well, thank you very much. We'll see you again, I hope, soon. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program, listen again in our audio archives, and find links to audio and video podcast features. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show, or add your comments in our ongoing message boards. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Rachel Unk, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.